0: So I'm sat here uh, this month with Dr. Grace Park, uh, the legendary Dr. Grace Park, I have to say, because she's been involved in so many different activities, and uh, and you won the Tom Blades Award as well, is that correct? I did a couple of years ago, yes. That was oh yes, that's right, yes. So what year was that? Sorry, I'm I'm losing track of.
1: I think it was two or three years ago. Okay.
0: Okay. All right okay so we're going to kind of uh dive straight into it this time um because there's a lot to get through um so i don't know if you wanted to start with i guess how you got involved with with leadership and uh, and so on
1: sure so when i look back i don't think there was a point in time where i said i'm going to go into medical leadership that just evolved over time and through the journey that i had in my career and, and now it's called leadership, medical leadership, and I go to lots of meetings around medical leadership. Um, I think what started for me was trying to do things better, to be more efficient with the use of my time, to serve my patients the best that I can, and also to be available for my family. I have uh, one son, he was born in 1995, And I think all of this started because I started realizing you're torn in so many different directions as a parent and I was so fortunate I have a husband who was in family medicine as well Angus McDonald and he was my partner in my practice at the time and so we shared family duties and we complemented each other's hours at work etc. But we were both of the old school where we really took care of our patients, whether they were sick in hospital, whether they were pregnant and, you know, in early days we even worked in emergency and all of that. But when I really wanted to participate in my son's life and he was starting to become, you know, preschool age and kindergarten, I was really starting to look for ways of reducing, you know, my call duty. And doing maternity was one of our big things and I loved doing maternity right from the beginning. But it meant that every night I'd go to bed and I would just pray that I wouldn't get called that night with one of my patients going into labor because in those days, a lot of GPs did obstetrics and we took care of our practice. So anybody in our practice that was due or was having some premature, you know, complications could call and they would go into the hospital and they would call you because you're on call for your maternity patients. And so I had started looking around at what other models there are, what are other people doing to make their lives a little bit more livable. And then, um, so a group of us started talking about it, maybe we should be doing a model like a maternity clinic, because we'd heard about it. And one opened in rural Columbian Hospital about 1998 or something like that. And then around that time was when the school of midwifery opened and the government started talking about midwives taking... You know the bulk of primary maternity care and and really recognizing the service they would provide and made us feel like you know we're not really that important to them and that was a feeling that we got and so this actually saw a huge exodus of gps from doing obstetrics for their patients and so they just all of a sudden started thinking well if midwives were going to come on the scene then maybe we don't have to provide the service for our patients So out of the about 22 GPs that were doing obstetrics at the time, we had about 15 of them leave. And so there was a small group of us left and we were wondering, well, do we all quit as well? But we had a doctor in our community, Kathy Meehan, who was a legend for sure, who did a lot of obstetrics and she delivered so many babies and she really was a fixture in our community. And she was wanting us to continue, and myself included, and a few other physicians got together and thought, well, maybe we should really look at that model. And so we started meeting at the cafeteria once a week at 7 in the morning. We would have a meeting about what it would take for us to work together and develop this model. And we met for many, many, many months, and then finally took up the idea to the administrative person, the executive director at the hospital, and went up there and we had never been up there before. I mean, I just never went into an administration area, but Kathy Meehan and I walked up there and, you know, we booked this appointment and, and she was ever so open and inviting of our thoughts. And I thought, wow, that's really different from what I expected. But it really went well. And she said, you know, we'll work toward developing this because we want you to stay involved in delivering babies for your practices so then we started getting into the idea that well if we're in this group and we can share our call days then you're not on call every day for anybody who might be available you know on call going to labor you'd be on call maybe once a week and so that was really impressive that change in the in what availability you had to have and then the model also allowed for you to work a full day at the hospital and be on call for your other group members and so you deliver a lot of babies in that 24-hour period so you start becoming you know a bit of an expert you develop the expertise and you start working very closely with the obstetrician colleagues and so you're, you're on call only once a week but you deliver way more babies than you used to you start becoming way more experienced in doing this care and then you start participating in education and then you start working in the team with the nurses on the floor, with the pediatricians, with the obstetricians, and so that's where I learned about team-based mm. care, and it was really fantastic. So that was really the beginning, mm. I think, of medical leadership is mm. to try to make this happen.
0: So I feel you've jumped a whole bit of the stories <laughs> that magically this maternity minutes? Uh, appeared so, mm-hmm. so but so but at the time there were sort of I, you, you know this was when the midwifery was kind of starting to take mm-hmm. off and when people were leaving, uh, or, or giving up their uh, you know their the opposition mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, privileges. What what year was that? Sorry. So Roughly. we
1: opened the maternity clinic in year 2000 so it would have been like okay. 1996 97ish okay. when we were starting to see the transition.
0: Okay. All right. Hmm. And so at the time were you know was there um you know what, what you, you know what were the sort of broader challenges in terms of you know what where were things at in terms of was there was there feeling that there was no future in terms of maternity here or mm-hmm. you know from a broader lens, you know, yeah. or was it, you know, what was going on?
1: Well, I sort of was just, you know, hunkered down into my practice for yeah. the longest time, but then I w- did go to a meeting
2: mm.
1: with Jan Chrystola, who was one of our obstetricians at the time with Fraser Health, mm-hmm. and they were talking about closing the smaller maternity hospitals because mm. they couldn't afford to keep yeah. them open or they didn't have enough specialties to cover them. Mm. And then they they were asking us, what's, what are your thoughts about, you know, making this more sort of doable in our health system Mm -hmm. and I said well we can consider all kinds of things except shutting down obstetrics at Peace Arch Hospital Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and they just looked shocked at me and I was just assuming well of course we're not going to shut down the maternity Mm -hmm. service at Peace Arch Hospital Mm -hmm. but they were thinking exactly that that smaller units are not sustainable they really wanted to build these big mega centers with Mm -hmm. all the specialties and And that's where some of the other obstetrical kind of models were going in the country.
3: Mm.
1: And so we had to work hard and really strategize on how to make our service Mm. something that people wanted Mm. and met high quality in terms of service provided and safety for our patients. Mm. And then we had to work on how to get Fraser Health to support that. So Mm. that was a lot of our work in the maternity clinic, bringing the doctors together, recruiting more doctors. And then we even went to ubc and applied to become a rotation for family practice residents to come through Mm -hmm. so when we became part of the faculty that was really great and Mm -hmm. that was another way of embedding ourselves into the system Mm -hmm. um yeah and then we had lots of support
0: and so that ultimately so, so um so the maternity unit started sorry Maternity clinic started in 2000, 2000. Mm-hmm. and then everything that you're talking about here led to the maternity unit that we know
2: mm-hmm.
0: At, mm-hmm. at Peace Arch Hospital. Yes. Uh, so, which yeah. was, and that was what,
1: 2009? 2005 or 6. Oh, right. okay. So yes, yeah. maybe a little bit later. I can't okay. remember exact dates. Mm. But when we started the maternity clinic, we were working on a very antiquated maternity ward. Mm which only had two labor and delivery rooms. Mm-hmm. And the patients were brought there when they were in late, going into second stage of labor, but they were mm-hmm. laboring in their own beds or coming mm-hmm. in there when they started needing more pain management, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very old ward needing upgrade, um, you know, very desperately. And so we started working with the foundation and the foundation took interest and really mm-hmm. wanted to use, you know, maternity as an example of how the community can come together fundraise and develop a program that's top-notch and one that's, you know, sustainable. So at one of these foundation meetings, where I was thanking the foundation for funds that we used to purchase, um, you know, um, know, incubator beds and that kind of thing, um, they approached me afterwards and said, what would it take for you to have a really great maternity ward? And I said, single room maternity service, single room maternity uh, units, and more of them because we only have two right now and we don't want to move labouring patients from the ward bed to the maternity labour room and plus we don't have room in our labour rooms right now for a maternity ward for husbands to stay with their newborn babies and their wives so we want bigger space for families to be able to participate so Mm -hmm. then they started campaigning and raised five million dollars to develop the maternity ward that we have today Mm
0: -hmm. fantastic Mm -hmm. and and so Going on from, from there, um, I think uh, you then started getting more involved in what would, what was or would become the division, is that, is that correct? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So after we had that, <clears throat> all that work through the maternity uh, ward and the development and the renovation and everything else that took years and years, mm-hmm. might have been close to 2010 by the time we opened the new ward, I started realizing how supportive. The administration was and the foundation in terms of mm. <clears throat> trying to um, meet our needs as mm. physicians mm. and i also realized how much we had to offer as physicians to administration to improve the quality of care and to do things better and so that's where i started taking an interest in medical administration to be an influence to the funders, to the bodies that actually make decisions about services and that kind of thing. So around that time, there was a call from Fraser Health, I believe the CEO at the time, Nigel Murray, was wanting to take a group of people to um, New Zealand. And and we had started talking about forming a division of family practice, sort of primary care kind of renewal was what we're looking at. And so we had this group of people that were invited to go to New Zealand to study their primary care system. And so we went and Brenda and I went from from our community, Brenda Mm Hefford, and other communities, and I think a couple of people from Abbotsford came and some Fraser Health people and some Ministry of Health people. Mm. So we went to New Zealand and visited various um, cities. So So
0: this is a bit of a 10, Ten, fifteen 15 people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you kind of went 10, 12 a, people and we yeah. went
1: and it was partially supported by Ministry of Health partially mm. by Fraser Health mm. Doctors of BC was supportive of it and mm. so we had somebody from Doctors of BC and you know various different people that was interested in primary care reform mm. so we went and studied these different <coughs> communities what they'd done there in New Zealand and they were years ahead really and very innovative and they had a funding model that was Really different from us, where the government funded the division directly. The division is what well, their equivalent of division. So the group of physicians actually took the funds for healthcare, worked with local agencies like home health and other services, and developed new um, ways of care delivery,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and then developed education and quality improvement. So they took on the role that the health authority has basically. But for their division of doctors. And so it was really interesting to see. And they were all so excited because they had a part to play mm-hmm. in how they ended up working. And they were so thrilled to show us their EMR system. And I was, remember one GP going on about this is look at this graph will show me how many tests this person should have done at that age for all the preventative services that they should avail themselves to. And and this graph is not high enough and I'm going to do better. And so really energized group of physicians um, because they were given this ability to sort of have a say in how they do their work. And then also they were really excited to you know provide care for their indigenous population the maori there Mm -hmm. and um, so that's where i learned about social prescribing through social ambassadors that accompanied the maori um, elders Mm. to their gps and then went shopping with them for the proper diet went to Mm. the drugstore to get their medication that kind of support that you can provide through social prescribing which is what i'm Currently
0: interested in doing. Mm-hmm. So out there, the div well, their equivalent of the division. I don't know what they call them, but um, mm-hmm. they're a bit bigger. It sounds yeah. like they're a bit bigger.
1: They were bigger, yeah.
0: And and perhaps bigger, better funded, or well, they had more yeah. funding flowing yeah.
1: because there were more physicians in okay. their in yeah. their groups. Yeah, I think they were called independent primary care, IPOs or something. Mm. Anyway, I can't remember that either. It was a long time ago. And so they had um, quite a stream of funding coming through mm. and then they were in charge of how they did their, you know, electronic medical records, how they did their medication management. They so, so the, the EMR
0: they create, it sounds like they created that themselves. Some of them did, yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And then they were very entrepreneurial with the data that they collected mm. in their primary care networks. And so they would <clears throat> pull the data from all their physicians in that group. Mm-hmm. And then they actually made the data available to government and other bodies that could use that to make decisions. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so we were we were we're a bit more make... hesitant out, out here to do that, aren't we? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, we don't. And... I don't think we have quite the free reign that they did. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. Were, okay, they were So really
0: they up. had a bit more because they were pulling because they had some autonomy and control. <laughs> they did. They had so had they a were lot creating those systems rather than it maybe coming from outside. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe that suspicion yeah mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. so okay so so what, what would you say you look i mean you mentioned social prescribing what else do you think yeah well so the kind of division let me just yeah. finish that piece yeah, yeah. so
1: then after we got back from new zealand um we started working with doctors of bc and the gpsc developed mm-hmm. and then we started working with gpsc and looking at how do we form these divisions of family practice throughout the province mm-hmm. and so Abbotsford and white rock were the first ones to you know um Um, develop a local corporation Mm. so we became a non-profit entity and then we could develop all of the workings and we had all the board structure etc developed and then the rest of the province went that way as well so then division of family practice became such an important entity for the ministry to deal with community physicians Mm. and that's where the GP for me came into place because they wanted to work at attachment and trying to improve you know the number of doctors and patients that it could have a GP so all of those processes came into place and that was a division of family practice um, setting mm-hmm. and that was around 2010 I guess mm-hmm. yeah and so
0: then, so I was just asking what did mm-hmm. you learn I mean you mentioned social prescribing and mm-hmm. the social ambassadors what else did, did you learn from what could we learn even now it sounds like we could learn a lot now even oh yeah from, we from can learn trip. a lot
1: Well, I remember the um, educational events that they had in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. They actually brought the community of doctors together Mm -hmm. and they would actually show the prescribing profiles (coughs) of the doctors and show that some doctors were using meds that were really expensive and maybe not shown to be, you know, that much better than the -hmm. less expensive ones. And so they actually tried to minimize the amount spent on drugs. And so they used their local data to drive their education as well Mm -hmm. and to work together to really take responsibility for for finances. And so that was a huge part of what they did as well. Mm -hmm. So um, coming together with local needs and what's important to the local doctors was hugely energizing. Mm -hmm. So I really learned that a lot from there. Mm -hmm. And then of course the Division of Family Practice is pretty much doing that. And we're evolving over time, of course. So that was the other piece that I learned. But the social prescribing piece was just fascinating to me that you can take people that are vulnerable Mm. and really needing support, but maybe not have the health literacy, don't understand really what the doctor is talking about, don't really know why they have to take this prescription or how to take it.
3: Mm.
1: And then really holding their hand to sort of show them, you know, maybe until it becomes ingrained as a habit, these are the foods that you should buy more Mm. of and these are the foods that you should have less of Mm. and then this is how you take your medication in the way that it was prescribed so that it makes a difference to your diabetes and Mm. you don't just take them you know a handful at a time you do it in the way that it was prescribed Mm. so all of this sort of education at a one-on-one level was so important and provided by a lay person really some of them may have had you know social work kind of background but they were usually people in the Indigenous group that may have been like a a leader, you know, in their uh, community. And they would take turns and and take their patients, their elders to the hospital and do that. So that idea stayed with me. And then just recently, as I've been working on projects for for frailty management in the elderly, How do we support people so they don't become frail? How do we reduce social isolation and support people that are vulnerable, that don't have the health literacy, and social determinants of health come into play, all of Mm -hmm. those things. So that's when we developed the CARES project, which Mm -hmm. is looking at frailty prevention Mm -hmm. by working with GPs and doing frailty assessments, and some GPs have taken up more than others. And then along with assessing what health problems they've got, we look at what social problems they've got. Mm. So do they have enough money at the end of the month? Do they have someone to call if they have a problem? Do they have adequate housing? Mm. Do they have air conditioning if they need it during the heat? dome? All these things that are not really medical, but they land up really at the GP's doorsteps as well because we're trying to look after that whole person. Mm. So. If a GP can't do it all because they don't have the time and or even understand what's available in the community, you can refer to a community connector in your community and they can take the patient and say, what are these things that you need? How can we get you connected to the community a bit better so that you can take better care of your activity, your food um, security, your housing security? Do you need help with your caregiver? Uh, Are they burning out? All these things that are really Mm non-clinical But there's these people in the community that can do that hmm. with your vulnerable So how person. did you
0: get started? We kind of jumped ahead, but that's yeah. fine. Um, how did you get started with that, with sort of making the social prescribing, the social prescribing. happen? happen out. So, yeah.
1: yeah, so that was part of my CARES project.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I guess I should just go back a little bit further. So after I uh, did the, some work with the Division of yeah, Family yeah. Practice... I started really taking an interest in medical administration. Mm -hmm. And by that time, I'd been working as a family physician for 25 years or so. And so I just started looking at what there is in terms of medical administration, started noticing the people that are doing medical administration at the health authority. And so then I went to um, UBC and took an MBA on medical or health um, health systems um, MBA. And so when I took that that allowed me to become a little bit more systems oriented and to be able to see things from different perspectives. So with doing that, I got connected with Fraser Health. And and when I finished that program, after I got my MBA, I applied for a position as a a medical director in the home health program, so community health services. And that Mm -hmm. was when Fraser Health was going through some change as well. They really wanted to bring in a whole lot of physicians into their leadership structure. So that was a really great timing for me to sort of go into that and so being a family physician from the community it made sense for me to work in the community with our home health staff Mm. and so i've been part of that for the last 12 years and so as i started working with home health and working with home care nurses that, that provide care for seniors that are vulnerable and living in their own Really I started getting interested in frailty there because mm. I kept thinking there's way more that could have been done mm. at the primary care level because that's always the lens that I wear is as a primary care physician. And so <clears throat> I learned about frailty prevention and then the um, health authority wanted me to go to do a program, um, a quality improvement program called Extra and that was executive training in research application. And so Fraser wanted to send a handful of people to. Mont and work with um, <clears throat> just learning about research. Mm. And so I did that, and so it was a fellowship in uh, research application, and one of the things that we had to do at, as that part of that program was come up with an implementa- implementation project, and that was CARES, and so that was Community Actions and Resources Empowering Seniors, and that was all about preventing frailty. So that was the CARES project, and that's what I started talking to Divisions of Family Practice about after I came back, and developed it over a number of years, and that's just been over the last five years I've been working on it. Mm. And then as I started working at what frailty prevention there is, and the measurement of frailty, I looked at frailty tools, Mm. and that's where we saw health deficits, but also social vulnerability index, and that you needed to apply (coughs) that same lens to social determinants of health if you want to keep that person healthy, and as they age, more and more you'll see social isolation which impacts their health, and more and more there's malnutrition and decreased activity level, and so just looking at what things are evidence-based to prevent frailty, so good nutrition, exercise, and social integration, those are the elements that we wanted to promote through social prescribing. So then I went to Oxford and took a course on integrated health and saw a community near Oxford doing social um, prescribing because yeah. that's where it all started and so yeah. learned a lot about social prescribing there and so we're working on it now in Fraser. So with some divisions they've really <clears throat> embraced it and a lot of the GPs are doing social prescribing. We have a connector in every community in Fraser and then also from the hospital now we're yeah. doing social prescribing.
0: So, what does that look like? So, when you talk about social prescribing, you know, I think you mentioned it in the New Zealand context. So, Mm -hmm. I think so the. so, yeah, do you want to expand on that? What, what yeah. does it actually does look, it look like, like for the person? Yeah. And, so, yeah.
1: a, so, a patient or a senior mm. can self-identify and say, yeah, I'm not really not getting out, but that mm. doesn't happen. You just see people that are isolated, Yeah.
3: yeah. but
1: as a GP, we come across people that yeah. really are isolated, don't have any family, maybe living out in the boonies by themselves, and you know they're not socializing at all. And so there you can actually talk to them about, you know, what would it take for you to get out to join Mm. a club or walking club, what would it take to get you to do some exercise, even get up and go classes. And you don't have a whole lot of time in the office, but you can make a referral to a Seniors Community Connector just on pathways.ca, you can look up social prescribing in your community and get the referral and send that off. And then the connector will pick up that referral and call the patient. Okay. And then because the patient has spoken with you and given consent to do this, the connector is able to have an interview and like over a period of many weeks to see what it might take for them to get out and do a bit of activity or join a social club or if mm-hmm. they are having issues with transportation or food security they can start looking at what resources are available to them in the community mm-hmm. so it's addressing a whole lot of things like even not being able to pay rent mm. they can work on rent subsidy mm. if they've lost their driver's license they can help them to fill out the handy dart forms mm-hmm. and whatever else is required and support them emotionally and they have volunteers that will do you know social visits friendly mm. visitors that kind of thing so they actually feel like they've got somebody to call Mm -hmm. and somebody who cares enough to call them on a weekly basis Mm -hmm. and then they send a note back to the gp saying i'm seeing your patient and she's agreed to be doing these activities and so then you can support them as well and encourage that further Mm because the whole idea is to motivate them and support them so that they continue with that healthier lifestyle
0: okay and and these connectors they're sort of employed They're hired through
1: the community organizations, Mm. and so we've, um, Fraser Health has collaborated with, um, United Way. So Mm -hmm. my team doing the CARES project, Mm. I was presenting the CARES project in an audience about senior health, Mm. and somebody from community-based service organization came up to me and said, we want to partner with you. We Mm. think that your project already has all the makings of connecting vulnerable seniors Mm. to community activities like exercise, which was the biggest thing we're promoting was exercise in the beginning. Mm. And so she was saying that the government was recognizing this as well and had some funding set aside. And so through United Way, they were going to make grants um, available Mm -hmm. to all the communities in BC. And so because we had the CARES project in BC, we got like half of the grants that were coming out to the province. And so we were really <clears throat> blessed to get a lot of funding. Mm. And then these funds went to a community um, organization like CumShare, which is mm. called Brella now in mm. White Rock. And so there they get the grant, they were, had an expression of interest, and then they were chosen to be the place to have this grant. Then they hired a connector Mm. and then they would manage the connector role. And so it's outside of the health authority, it's outside of the division, but they support both. Mm. So it's a really great collaboration.
0: And so sorry, I'm I'm probably asking, is it, it, this is, uh, the, the social prescribing, is it purely for, um, older, older people Right mm -hmm. right at the moment? Okay. Is there any plans? So, so the so project that yeah. I've done, the project
1: yeah. that I have been working with with my little team mm. has been on seniors yeah. and so I work with the healthy aging portfolio at mm. United Way. Mm-hmm. So that's people over the yeah. age of 65, yeah. but they will take people that are maybe disabled and a bit younger okay. and in the Aboriginal communities will go with 55 as a cutoff age. Yeah. But people with mental health um, conditions and other disability situations, the community organizations will still support them, but maybe not through my program. The yeah. program that we've set up is yeah. specifically for seniors. For seniors. For now. Okay, mm-hmm.
0: all right. Okay, so you, you can... So the uh, social prescribing is also kind of built into our PCN yes. uh, service map. So if you're yes. referring people uh, for frailty or other issues, this, that, you know that the nurse as the PCN nurse, as they get involved mm-hmm. may well sort of help yes with that referral
1: absolutely yeah. yeah so the referral can come from the PCN nurse or mm-hmm. it can come from the family physician mm-hmm. or it can even come from caregivers yes. family members etc mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: okay so um, so coming we're, we're gonna go backwards again in the okay. story which is your sure. division so you got so basically um, after your trip to New Zealand mm-hmm. uh, you got involved with the division itself in terms of you were on the board and, oh, yes. and this, yeah. this kind of thing at the right at the beginning, it sounds like. The very yeah. first, yeah. yeah. So
1: there were three of us that were like hardcore division um, advocates. That was myself, Brenda Hefford, and Steve Largakis. Yeah. So the three of us would meet and work together, and we were at the lawyer's office getting ourselves incorporated and that kind of thing. And then we built out the staff that yeah. were required to support us you know we had an executive director that would work with us and somebody and then the team gradually grew over time as well but the first you know board of directors we were all three of us on there and recruited a couple of other physicians to be on the board of directors and then really started meeting uh, at the CSE table you know with um, the division with the local uh, with the health authority and doctors at BC representative, and in the beginning we also had Ministry of Health representation as well, but it's gotten there pretty thin on the ground. Mm-hmm. So to this day the CSC table mm-hmm. is really important, where the health authority comes together with the division mm-hmm. to look at issues that are you know needing to be you know um, discussed and gaps in care that need to be improved. And so the CSC was set up really at right at that level. So we were there. So CSC the stands for collaborative services committee okay
0: yeah so just uh so so that's an ongoing committee so right. i'm 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 on it so mm-hmm. di- the, the division chair and then the ed uh local ed so that would be kathy, kathy Weed. And and hospital. Ones. yeah mm-hmm. and of course you're on there as well but we'll, we'll come to that story yes. a yes so, yeah yeah so okay so, so sorry i interrupted your story so you were telling about the division in its early days yeah and how it yeah was so that
1: was all yeah. set up and then You know early days because we were one of the earlier ones to to develop we Mm -hmm. would go to provincial meetings set up by doctors of bc so we were you know downtown quite a lot for these meetings Mm -hmm. and um, talking about our experience and talking to other communities many of them rural communities trying to come together with their doctors Mm -hmm. so it was really exciting to see other communities come together and really wonderful to see GPs who are so used to being just isolated individual practitioners all of a sudden come together and recognize they have a voice when they come together at the table mm. and they can actually pool their ideas and prioritize them as to what they want to work on together with the local you know, health authority um, <clears throat> administration. Mm.
0: And so somewhere along the line you got you did an MBA, is that, mm-hmm. is that correct? Mm-hmm. So how do you tell me? So that was back <laughs> yeah.
1: in tw- 2009 and t- finished in the 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 9 10 somewhere around there. Yeah. So that was um, around the time that I was thinking that I would like to do more administration and then I was also leaving maternity because we had recruited some new doctors. A lot of them, having gone through the family practice rotation, wanted to come and join us. Mm. So we were really fortunate and we got maybe three or four young doctors to join our group. And so in doing that, I kind of phased myself out and I realized that I was getting older and maybe I don't really enjoy staying up all night once a week, it was what I was doing. And then also with my family, my son was getting older and I wanted to be more available for him as he was preparing for university and all that. So I really wanted to shift over to doing less obstetrics, less call, and then trying to be a bit more flexible in in the hours that I worked. So then I heard from a colleague that she had um, just completed this um, MBA in healthcare put on by solder school and it was downtown campus and it was <clears throat> you don't have to be there every day you can be there every second week for an extended long weekend and so time away from work you know you could manage it even if you're working but then I ended up taking six months off from my practice to be able to do the work yeah. and it was quite rigorous and very applied business um, you know principles in healthcare. so I learned an awful lot and the class was made up of all kinds of different people not all of them in healthcare, but Mm -hmm. most of them. Mm -hmm. So that was really an eye opener. And then just getting a sense of, you know, how many perspectives there are in in the world. Mm -hmm. It's not just you as a physician, Mm -hmm. where we used to always think you only had the right perspective, but you go to school and you realize you're just one Mm -hmm. of many voices that need Mm -hmm. to be in the room.
0: And then, uh, so you've got, you you know, you've kind of touched on it, but you you took on uh, a more, involved with Fraser Health yes and and that was as a that was as a program
1: medical director for home health okay so that's working with community health services Mm -hmm. and again when i first started you know i didn't know a, a whole lot about it but um you learn over time and you know it took a while before i felt like i was being of some influence probably a good two three years before i understood really what was going on but right at the beginning of my <clears throat> tenure, we were working on integration with primary care practitioners. So what we were really wanting to do was have home health nurses connect with primary care practitioners in the community around a given population, the same population that both of them would serve. So before that, it used to be case managers managing all these patients in a certain geographical area. and with those number of patients she might have, like about a hundred, she would have maybe 85 GPs that were attached mm-hmm. to those hundred people. So we rearranged all of that. And so we had case managers aligned with GP practices. And so a case manager would only have at very most four or five GPs that she would get to know quite well. And so she, we just shuffled all the cases around and so that it became possible for the case manager to meet with GPs on a regular basis and talk about the number of patients that they had in common and then get the GP involved in care planning and directing their care as the patient got older. So that was really foundational with that and GPs really like that and so my role involved engaging with all the divisions of family practice in Fraser Health talking about this new program and then getting the doctors to be interested in participating in the care of their elderly patients that are at home. So that was um, beginning parts of it. And then gradually program management kind of went out of favor and now it's decentralized. And so I still have a regional role, which means that I can participate in any community, mm. but each community has its own sort of leadership structure. And so they have their own executive director and the directors at the hospital that they kind of oversee the community programs. Mm. So there's still kind of touch points along the way through all the health authorities. But the CARES program was a regional one, so I can go to any community and start talking about frailty prevention and it makes Mm. sense to everyone. Mm. So that's been really a a journey over the last 10, 12 years. Mm. And then since I've been doing the CARES project, because I've been talking about it long enough now, all the home health staff at all the uh, offices know that, that I have this interest in frailty. And then I started talking about social prescribing and I go to the regional meeting where all the home health staff come and they know now about social prescribing so mm. as lo- as well as providing home health services like home care nursing and personal care they make the referral to the local connector as well mm. for social prescribing mm. so I've been able to spread that through home health spread that through the divisions mm. and so trying to keep it going yeah and it's getting stronger
0: yeah yeah <laughs> so so I wanted to ask I mean you again I think at the right at the beginning you kind of touched on some of these themes is is you know is how how you managed to sort of find the time and the energy I guess to and balance everything where you were mm-hmm. kind of doing all these activities so to try and list them out maternity clinic maternity unit division MBA Fraser regional social prescribing there's, there's research yeah. now I'm hearing but but we maybe don't have time to go into that so how, yeah. how did that you know particularly maybe earlier on how, how did you manage to balance all of that with the family and and mm-hmm. all the rest of it
1: well i think for me it was it was always um interesting to look at what else there was out there mm. and i worked you know nose to the grindstone pretty steady for 10 years as i mm. started family practice i started working here in 1987 and for a good 10 years, I was available every day of the week to, for my maternity patients. And, you know, and then my son was born in 1995, and I was starting thinking, well, maybe i got to do something a bit different. But we didn't really know how to change. And so it was just out of need to try and make my life a bit simpler that I started going toward this maternity clinic thing.
0: So you were itching your own scratch, as they say. Yes, you were trying to solve the problem that you were basically Solving the problem
1: because nobody else <laughs> yeah. would tell me how to solve that yeah. problem. Yeah. But we were all the same, you know, just dreading the idea that, oh, my gosh, I hope I don't get called tonight because I'm really tired. Or, you know, my son's got a birthday party. I better not get called. And I remember being at Metrotown around Christmas time, and I had one of those great big Motorola cell phones, the first edition Motorola cell phone that was huge brick. And they paged me because somebody had come in labor, and they were in early labor, and I couldn't get my phone to work, so I had to go to a phone booth. And then, as I was reaching for the phone, somebody grabbed the handle away from me, and so I was standing there thinking, "Somebody's paged me, and I can't call them." I was in a panic-stricken state, and so that's the kind of life it was. So, by developing a system where we actually worked only one day a call, and it was predictable, mm. Mm. that was really so, so much better.
0: Yeah. So, really, a lot of the, where this is kind of coming from is is you've seen these problems. Mm-hmm in your own practice or you know what you were seeing yourself and and kind of then over time gone out and
1: trying to find a solution yeah 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 and then getting support you know having an idea as a physician I I think this is something that I think your listeners should remember is that if you've got a good idea and there's a real need Mm. you just need to make it known you just need to get it to a place where it's heard and as long as you have the energy to push for it and get like-minded physicians to support you and work with you, administration will support you because they really want those medical ideas because we're the ones that are touching the patients. Mm, mm,
2: mm.
0: And how's, in terms of your family and so on, how have they reacted to your, you know, particularly early on increasing involvement with things? and
1: Yeah. Well, I was really lucky, my husband was very supportive mm. of all the interesting work that I did. Mm. Um, he hated meetings, he hates going to meetings to this day. <laughs> I, I quite enjoy meetings because I figure that's how you do your work. Yeah. But. Um, because we were able to share our office and share our hours and share our childcare. We Mm. only had one child, Mm. you know, if I had more kids it would have been a different story probably, but Mm. between the two of us we were able to juggle everything. Mm -hmm. But there was always this pull that I should be doing less work. I should be trying to be home more, but you know, I needed to be stimulated also to try and do things that are interesting. So Mm. there was that part of it. And, um, yeah, and you know, when you don't have a whole lot of time, you make the most of it, don't you? Yeah. You make the most of what's so scarce. And so, all the time that I did have with my son as he was growing up, mm-hmm. I made sure I was at all his, you know, field trips from school yeah. and all the camping trips and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he actually turned out to be a wonderful person. He's a psychiatry resident
0: now. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, there's a lot. A lot that you've just gone through. So, um, yeah, no, thanks, thanks so much for, for your well, for your time for coming and sharing with us. But, but really, an incredible uh, story. As I say, we didn't, you know, we usually start off with talking about. You know, personal journeys and, and how you came to White Rock house, sorry. But mm-hmm. I think with this one there really was no time. We had to we had to kinda of go jump straight into it. Yeah. There's so much that you've been involved with and, and,
1: and through it all I gotta you know. throw in. I ran five marathons. Oh wow, I did yeah, this. Yeah, that's yeah. that's another thing. Marathons. Which were one great. which ones? So I did Victoria, um, Victoria, Vancouver, Dublin, Prague, New York.
0: Wow.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: And did you still do you still run now?
1: Just on the treadmill. Okay. Yeah, not okay. the long distances. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard on my back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, with that we'll kind of um, um, wrap up. But thank thanks again. Thanks once more for all, You're very welcome. I love your involvement and, and thank and, you. And I think for me also really kind of somewhat inspiring that, you know, you can that it is possible to make these things happen mm-hmm. and, and to, uh, to work with partners, work, work and, and make all of these things possible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, thank you. Thanks again.
1: My pleasure.